0: Well, good evening, Praxis. It is a joy to see you all here. Now we're in this, in the sanctuary instead of in the gym, so we've made it. The trek from there to here has been successful. So I'm glad we're all here tonight for the kickoff of our new season and our new miniseries on the glory of God. If this is your first time visiting us, I just want to welcome you again and thank you for being with us. My name is Alessandro, and I'll be starting us off on this mini-series since Pastor Allen is out of town this week. In a few weeks, we'll be starting a new series on dating, so the fact that we have this mini-series on the glory of God is no coincidence. It's very intentional. So although dating or romantic relationships might be frequently on your mind, uh, we wanted to make sure that... We keep things in the right perspective, and marriage and dating obviously are important, uh, but there's so much more to life than marriage and dating. Life is really about the glory of God. And so we want to make sure that we have our hearts and our minds grounded on the glory of God first and foremost, and then with God's glory in mind, then we can properly turn our attention to marriage and dating. So I trust that this two-part series on the glory of God will be profitable for you, and will help you to keep that grounding well into the future. And so tonight's message will focus more on the glory of God itself, and next week, Pastor Allen will focus more on living out, living for the glory of God. And so with all of that, please join me for a word of prayer before we look into our text in Exodus 33 and 34. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for having us here tonight. We are so incredibly thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, and that we get to sit under the majesty of your revelation to your people, that we get to sit under the majesty of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Lord, that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us, but indeed, if we are in Christ, then you are with us and in us. Lord, please bless this time in your word. May your glory transform our hearts and our minds. And through that, may we live our lives for your glory forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The glory of God. Where do we begin on such a topic? How is it that we can seek to understand the glory of God? How is it that we can begin to comprehend the glory, and the majesty, and the beauty, and the holiness of an infinite God. How can we even conceive of this glory of a God who knows everything, and who is sovereign over everything? It seems almost like a fool's errand, and a hopeless task, to try and understand, and behold the glory of God. You almost feel a sense of despair when you even consider this pursuit. But at the same time, there's also this draw in our hearts because we want to know this God. We want to know our God. We want to know the true God who has created all things and who sustains all things. And so this is the blessed despair, the pursuit of knowing God and beholding his glory understanding our God, and having a relationship with Him, even though He is an infinite and holy God. But we should be encouraged as we enter this blessed despair, because He decided to reveal to us through His Word and through the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though we can and we should spend the rest of our time in our life knowing God and beholding His glory, Let us take this small step tonight in this lifelong pursuit as we look at Exodus 33 and 34. Now, Even though we'll be looking at a large portion of Exodus 33 and 34, we're going to begin by reading chapter 33, verses 18 to 20, followed by chapter 34, verses 5 and 7. Now, these are very familiar verses, but I want to set them before you as we hope to see the glory of God in his actions, in his proclamation, and in the gospel. So those are our three points for tonight, as you have in your handout. So go ahead and open your Bible to Exodus 33, as I read verses 18 to 20. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now turn over to chapter 34, verses 5 and 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And proclaim the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation." Now, these are amazing words in Scripture that reveal to us the glory of God. But as always, we want to understand these words in their proper context. And I think that will help us to marvel even more at the glory of God. So first, I want you to see the glory of God and his actions. Because what is going on at this point in the book of Exodus? Why is it that Moses is even making this request to God in verse 18 when he says to the Lord, please show me your glory. Well, the quick quick response at a glance would be found earlier in verse 13, where Moses says, please show me now your ways that I may know you. And that would be a good start. But we need to go beyond that first start. In and of itself, it's amazing that Moses would request to see God's glory and that he would see something of it. But still, Why is Moses asking to see God's glory and why does God respond to him saying he will make his goodness pass before him? Why does God say that he will show grace and mercy to whom he will show grace and mercy? How is it that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? What does this have to do with anything of what's going on at this point in the book of Exodus? Well, to get the full weight of this self-revelation of God, we have to understand what is going on between Moses and God at this juncture. And to get a sense of the love of God and his glory, we have to see that this isn't Moses just asking for a theological lesson on the attributes of God. Rather, this is Moses in a crisis situation. This is Moses and the people of Israel in the middle of a disaster trying to rectify the catastrophe that they have on their hands. So what is this crisis that they're facing? How do they get to this point? How do we see God's glory in his actions in this crisis? Well, if you remember back in the book of Genesis, God had made a promise to Abraham and to his descendants. And God promised that he would make Abraham into a great nation, that he would bless his people and that he would give them the land in which they were sojourning. Well, God began to fulfill that promise. But at the end of the book of Genesis, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, they end up in Egypt due to famine. Then we fast forward 400 years and we find that the Israelites have multiplied. They've become as if they were a great nation. But they were slaves, suffering oppression and forced labor under the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They certainly didn't possess the promised land, And they certainly didn't feel very blessed in that situation. So the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They cried out for help. They cried for deliverance. And the Lord heard their cry. And he was intent on saving his chosen people from their slavery. And now Moses enters the picture. Pharaoh, at that time, because he began to fear the Israelites because of their size, even though they were slaves, he had commanded that all the males that were born of the Israelites to be killed so that he could keep them in check. But in the midst of that, in God's sovereignty, Moses, he's adopted as a small child by Pharaoh's very own daughter, he grows up until there until the age of 40. At age 40, Moses sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and in order to save the Israelite, he kills the Egyptian. But he's found out, and he has to flee from Egypt. So Moses ends up in the land of Midian, becomes a shepherd, and finds a wife, and settles down. Hey, bro, we're not starting the dating series yet. I know there's encouragement. Moses got married at the age of 40, but two more weeks, two more weeks, we'll be there. But let me tell you why Moses is a constant encouragement to me. Because 40 years later, at the age of 80, Moses is called into the ministry. So there's hope for me. There's hope. I'm almost quite there. But Moses is out there one day tending to the flock. The Lord appears to him in the burning bush. This is the first glimpse that Moses has of the glory of God. And God speaks to him. And Moses is afraid. He's commanded to take off his sandals, because where he is standing is holy ground, because the Lord is present with him there. In Exodus 3, six, he says to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses has this first encounter with the glory of God, and he's afraid, and rightly so. And then God commands Moses to go back to Egypt, and that God will use him to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. How does Moses respond? Is he he like, yeah, I got this, no problem, bro, we got this. No, he doesn't want to go back to Egypt. So what is his response to God? Moses says to him in verse 11 of chapter 3, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And here's the key. God says, but I will be with you. I will be with you. And as you read on in the book of Exodus, there is a lot of back and forth between Moses and God. But God gives him this power to perform certain signs. And he tells him what he... What He's supposed to say? and God reiterates to Moses, "I will be with you." And as Moses makes his way down to Egypt and confronts Pharaoh, he brings the various signs and plagues against Egypt. God is the one who is doing all of these signs against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians. God is with him as he's doing these things. God turns the water into blood. He sends a plague of frogs, a plague of gnats, a plague, of mosquitoes, locusts, hail fire, and darkness. And throughout this entire time, God is with Moses, bringing these plagues upon Egypt. And finally, after the final plague, the death of every firstborn, Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. And as the Israelites leave Egypt and they plunder the nation, God is with them. He's leading them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And when they reach the Red Sea, God parts the sea with the wall of water on their left and a wall of water on their right. The Egyptian army follows them only to be crushed by the sea, but God is with the Israelites. He is with them as he brought them safely out of the land of Egypt across the Red Sea, and eventually they they reach to Mount Sinai. And God commands Moses to go up to the mountain, And this is perhaps one of the most awesome and powerful manifestations of God's glory that we see in Scripture. God calls the people to the mountain, and there is thunder, and there is lightning, and a thick cloud, sounds of loud trumpet blasts that grow louder and louder and louder. And the mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on the mountain in fire. This is a manifestation. Of God's glory. God is with them. He is with them. And the Lord gives them the Ten Commandments, and He gives Moses the rest of the law. And He's on the mountain with God for 40 days and for 40 nights. And in this short time span, after seeing some of the majesty and the glory of God, the people commit a great evil. They commit this great sin against the Lord. They made a golden calf, and they declared that these were the gods of, that had brought them out of the land of Egypt, that they worshiped it, and as if that thing, that golden calf, was the true and living God. They worshiped the golden calf. In Exodus 32.6, it says that the people, they sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play which is a euphemism for untold immorality. And this, this very thing, this is what brought about Israel's crisis. This is what brought them to the brink of disaster. They broke the second and the third commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, and you shall not bow down before them. And after everything, after everything that they'd been through, Seeing God bring the ten plagues against Egypt, seeing the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire leading them out of Egypt, after seeing some of the glory of God on Mount Sinai and the fire and the smoke and the thunder and lightning and the trumpets blast, in all of these things, God was with them. But now he says, I will send my angel before you. but I will not go with you. In Exodus 33:3, God says to them, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." I will not go with you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Now for their part, the people actually responded in a reasonable manner. In verse 4 of chapter 33, it says, When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Now this brings us to the beginning of our passage in verse 12, when Moses begins to intercede to the Lord on behalf of the Israelites. So look down at verse 12 in chapter 33. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people... But you have not let me know whom you will send with me, and yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight, and consider too that this nation is your people." Now, God has told Moses that he would send an angel before them to the promised land as they left Sinai. But Moses is saying, you're telling me to go to take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't even told me who is going to go with me. And you say that I found favor in your sight. And in verse 13, he says, show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. It's like, It's like saying, Lord, you say you're not coming with us, but I'm not understanding this. What do you have in mind, O Lord? I am confused. Show me your ways. Tell me what I should do that I might gain favor in your sight. Now, God has been with Moses all this time, and now the crisis for him is, is that God says he will not go with them. But Moses knows that they are toast without God. Without God, they are nothing. It's as if Moses is saying, I want you to come with us. What do I need to do to get you to come with us? This will all become clear as we move on through our passage. In verse 14, God says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Wait, what? My presence will go with you? Now this is incredible, and it's almost as if Moses didn't even hear him, because he says in the very next verse, if your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. And he keeps going in verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And Moses continues to make his plea to the Lord. But the Lord had already said that his presence would go with him and that he would give him rest. So we begin to see God's glory in his actions towards Moses and the Israelites. They had broken God's commandments, and he could have rightfully destroyed them right then and there because of their sin. But we see God's forgiveness in his willingness to be present with them, to be with them, to go with them once again. And yet Moses continues to plea with God. But it's helpful and interesting to note. Moses is not just pleading for himself. He is pleading on behalf of the people, God's people as he refers to them. And he knows that God's presence with them is the very thing that sets them apart from everyone else. Moses knows that they are nothing special on their own. And from the world's perspective, they were a bunch of nobodies that were slaves down in Egypt. There was nothing intrinsically valuable or distinctive about them that would draw God to them. Rather, it was the very presence of God with them that set them apart, and that made them a special people, a distinct people from the rest of the world. And again, we continue to see the glory of God in his actions, and in particular, his forgiveness toward the Israelites. Look at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. The Lord is being kind and exceedingly gracious towards them. Look at in verse eighteen, nineteen. I want you to see God's glory and his sovereignty in bestowing his grace and mercy upon Israel. In verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Moses continues to plead with God. So why does he want to see God's glory? Why does he make this request? Again, Moses is not asking for a theological lesson in the middle of this conversation, in the middle of this crisis. Moses wants reassurance that God will be with him. Just like Moses saw the glimpses of God's glory in the burning bush, in the pillar of cloud and fire, on the Mount Sinai. Moses wants to see God's glory, to know, to be certain that God will be with them. And we see God's amazing grace and kindness in his response to Moses, because he doesn't just reveal his glory to Moses as he's done in the past. He goes beyond that. He reveals to Moses even more of who God is, even more of his character. In verse 19, it says that God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Now, honestly, this passage just blows my mind because the Israelites had sinned gravely. They desperately needed restoration and forgiveness. And Moses is pleading with God, and you get this sense that he feels like he has to do something to convince the Lord to continue to be with them. And as we've already seen, in a sense, God's moving towards Moses and saying that his presence will go with them. But the Israelites deserve punishment to the fullest extent. And what they receive is sovereign grace, sovereign mercy. There is nothing that Moses could do to reestablish Israel's relationship with God. There is nothing in his power to undo the sin or make amends for Israel's transgression. But we see God's glory in his actions of sovereign grace and sovereign mercy towards the Israelites. Because out of God's own sovereign love, the Lord has promised to be with them. Moses asked for this reassurance in seeing God's glory, and he will get that. He's already gotten much more in this further revelation of God's character, but there's still more that God will reveal to him. As we speed through these next verses, we'll see God's glory in his actions as he reveals more of himself to Moses and protects Moses in the process. In verse 20, follow along as we read, he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. We catch a glimpse of the holiness of God, the fact that he is so holy and righteous and pure, and he is so distinct, set apart from all his creation, that just a glimpse of his face would destroy us because we are sinful human beings. Of course, God doesn't have a face. He is a spirit. But this is anthropomorphic language that helps us to understand God in somewhat human terms. No one can see God and live. That speaks to the holiness of God. But the rest of verse 22 and 23 highlight the genuine care that God has for his people. First, the fact that he even takes the time to reveal himself to us as something that we should really consider and ponder in our alone time with the Lord. Why would God reveal himself to us? We are like the Israelites. We are nobody. We are nothings. But this infinite, almighty, and holy, and pure God takes the time and the care to reveal himself to you and to me. Second, even though we would be undone By his holiness, if we were to see him, he provides his protection, as we see here with Moses. Whatever it is that we need in order to continue in our relationship with him, God will provide that, as he does here with Moses, because God cares for you. We see God's glory in his actions and revealing himself and protecting us from utterly being undone in his presence. And in Exodus 34, verses 1 through 4, God tells Moses to make two tablets of stone, like the original ones that were broken by Moses when Israel worshipped the golden calf. And so we see this restoring love from God to reestablish the covenant with his people that he made with them on Mount Sinai. So we've seen God's glory in his actions as he expressed his forgiveness in promising to go again with them, as he sovereignly bestowed his grace and his mercy upon them, in his revelation and protection to Moses on the mountain, in his merciful statement that the covenant of the two tablets, they will be re-established. And now we'll look at the second point, the glory of God in his proclamation, and we'll pick it up where the Lord now comes and shows his glory to Moses. And Moses is back on the mountain, and God meets him once again. Chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Again, remember, Israel has just broken the second and the third commandment. By God's sovereign grace, when Moses asks to see his glory, God reveals more of himself than ever before. And here we see God's glory in his self-proclamation. God proclaims his own name, which means that he is proclaiming to Moses who he is, who, what his character is like. And if you recall that term, the Lord, in capital letters, that refers to the covenant name of the God of Israel, And it was revealed to Moses back way back at the burning bush that this is the personal name of God, Yahweh. That God is the great I Am. That he is the God who has always existed. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. That God is the great I Am. But then the Lord proclaims multiple characteristics about himself. He says that the Lord is merciful and gracious. And this has to do with God's compassion towards his people. This speaks of his tender love and his mercy towards those whom he has sovereignly set his love upon. This stands in great contrast to the gods of Egypt and the gods of Assyria and other false gods who are essentially stone cold in their hearts and crush people under the lack of love and compassion, even demanding that, there would, that they would give up their own children as human sacrifices. That is a stark contrast between the false gods of this world and the true God of Scripture, who is indeed loving and merciful and compassionate. A contrast that tender love and that gentle mercy of God to our own idols who try to crush us under the weight of their own demands. And yet, never being satisfied, the idols of our heart always make us long for more. Our heart idols are ruthless, and they are nothing like the true and living God. Instead, The Lord is slow to anger, which is to say that he is patient with us in our sins, that he doesn't immediately judge us and obliterate us when we sin against him. He is long-suffering, and he is patiently forbearing us until we turn from our sins to him. And says that the Lord is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and this has to do with God's loyal love a love that stands true and that is not shaken. And once the Lord has sovereignly set his love upon his people, he will keep his covenant, and he will remain faithful and loyal in his love towards them. And even when they are unfaithful in their love towards him, again, keep in your minds the reality that God just delivered his people from Egypt and they have already broken his commandments. And he is revealing his character to them in all of his actions and his self-proclamation of his sovereign love towards them. And through his actions, he's demonstrated his love and his faithfulness, and he's willing to go with them. He's willing to reinstate the covenant with them. And now he is showing Moses his glory, his goodness, his character, so that Moses can understand God and his steadfast love and faithfulness. And we see in verse 7 that he keeps a steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And this is referring to the extent of God's love. The referent for thousands is somewhat ambiguous, and thousands of people or thousands of ages or thousands of generations. What is it? The point is is that it is his love and his grace that are inexhaustible. That is the point. We're saying it goes to thousands. And he also forgives all manner of sin, whether it be disobedience, whether it be rebelliousness, immorality, or any sin in general. There are no degrees or types of sin that are beyond God's power or willingness to forgive. And lastly, God is a God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This has to do with the reality that although God is a forgiving God, that he will not let unrepentant sinners escape without punishment. He will hold them to account. There is no glossing over sin to the unrepentant heart. And sin before God will be called to account. And the last portion there serves to inform us that even though sin may be forgiven, may be forgiven for the repentant heart, and even though sin may be punished to the unrepentant heart, that there are consequences of those sins that can impact multiple generations. The sins that are committed by others, the sins that are committed by ourselves, they can have lasting repercussions onto multiple generations. To be clear, What that passage is saying does not mean that God is punishing children for their father's sins. That is not what that is saying. Ezekiel 18 makes that abundantly clear. The one who sins shall die. And he goes through very clearly saying it's not the children being punished for the sins of the fathers. But the main thrust of this entire revelation is God's mercy and his grace And his steadfast love. And so now we've seen the glory of God in his actions and in his proclamation. Now I want you to see how this unfolds even further as we see the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here we're going to jump out of our passage for a bit, but I believe this will be worthwhile because if we're honest with ourselves, we might be wondering how is it that God? Forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but will also at the same time by no means clear the guilty. How does that work? A well-known pastor and commentator calls this the riddle of the Old Testament. All right, this passage, Exodus 34, verses 5 and 7 through 7, is quoted and alluded to numerous times in the Old Testament. But I think that the clarity of this self-revelation of God comes through most clearly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what a glorious gospel it is. John chapter 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, obviously, we are all sinners before God. There's no question about that. Each and every one of us has broken God's laws, and we've sinned against an infinite and holy God. We deserve his wrath. We deserve eternal punishment because we are guilty. But here we see forgiveness offered to everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes will not receive the eternal punishment that they deserve. But rather, eternal life. But God's self revelation says that He will by no means clear the guilty. So, what gives? My friends, this brings us to the amazing truth of the gospel. We we might call this next detail the great exchange. In the next verses, the He and the Him in this next passage, it's referring to Jesus, to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The amazing truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a man, took on human flesh, and lived a perfect and sinless life. He is perfectly righteous. But even though he himself did not sin, he suffered the full wrath of God for our sins when he suffered and died on the cross. And so he took our sins upon himself, suffered the wrath of God in our place, and his righteousness is credited to us. This is the great exchange. This is the gospel. And this is true, For anyone who turns away from their sins and believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection from the dead. And so my question is, is this true of you? My friend, if you are here tonight and you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, please know that you are destined towards eternal punishment under the wrath of God, because as he himself said, he will not clear the guilty. But in his sovereign love, in his sovereign grace and his mercy, he has made a way for your sins to be forgiven if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and place your hope in him and not in yourself. Hear his call to you. Turn to him. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now in conclusion, what are we to do with all of this? How are we to respond after seeing God's glory in his actions, in his proclamation, and in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I have one application point. And it is straight from our text, and our brother Moses, Exodus 34, eight and nine. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if I now have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Worship the Lord. Meditate on the glory of God, on his goodness, on his character. Respond to the Lord in his glory in worship. That is one of the dominating features of our life, to worship this great God let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your merciful and gracious revelation of yourself to us in your word. Thank you that you have given your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the perfect image of who you are, that you have shown him to us, that you have shown how it is that you will show steadfast love and forgive iniquities and sins, but that you will also by no means clear the guilty. Father, for those of us who are in Christ by your mercy and grace, we thank you that he suffered and died in our place, that he suffered under your wrath for our sins, and we praise you that he resurrected again from the dead on the third day. Father, we love you. Help us to behold your glory every day, to meditate on the gospel of your Son, that we might live every single day for your glory. We pray these things humbly in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.